Blog Talk Radio. show for you today. Um, <clears throat> okay, so President Trump finally brought back the um, COVID press conferences. As uh, an artist, JoJo, once said, you know it's just too little too late. So we'll talk about that. Um, he gave away the game in uh, his most recent press conference where he talks um, he talks about education and what he plans on doing, and, um, yeah, it's, it's not good. It's not good. Then we have, uh, Trump's obsession with the cognitive test. It just gets funnier and funnier. Biden shoved his foot in his mouth in his latest live stream in an embarrassing way. Um, why is it that so many Democrats opposed Bernie Sanders' 10% Pentagon cut? We will discuss that, and the answers are not pretty. Not pretty at all, I do say. Um, then I will give you a little bit of an update on the stimulus later. I got Nancy Pelosi with a new nickname for Trump, which is just embarrassing. Um, AOC and Ted Yoho can't stop fucking sniping at each other. So it's, uh, it's going to be a busy show, y'all. going to be a busy show. All right, without further ado, let's get started. President Trump has finally brought back the COVID press conferences now, I really think he messed up on this front. He used to do them every single day early on in the crisis. Then he stopped doing them when he had that really embarrassing session where, uh, you know, he basically said, like, we got to try to get the UV light inside the body because the UV light is very good at wiping out this virus. It's really something special. 
and you know, there's uh, some disinfectant kills it. Maybe we could find a way to get the disinfectant inside as well. So, you know, get the disinfectant inside, get the UV light inside. And basically everybody was laughing at him. And so uh, he was massively triggered by that. And he said, all right, well, you know what? Then screw you guys. I'm not doing a press conference anymore. Well, funny enough, when he was doing it every day, even though he wasn't, you know, handling COVID particularly well and his policy ideas were a bit of a disaster and he didn't go far enough and, you know, there's all these criticisms of him. But just the fact that he was, you know, pretending to be Mr. Leader, his approval on COVID was over 50% of the time, if I remember correctly, I think it was like 60 some odd percent. And the reason is people appreciate even the appearance of leadership. So look at Cuomo in New York. Cuomo did not do a great job here in New York. Um, You know, he had COVID positive patients go back into nursing homes and then, you know, it spread like wildfire through the nursing homes and, and really increased the death rate. He cut billions of dollars from Medicaid in the middle of the pandemic. He wasn't a good leader, but just the fact that he was pretending to be a good leader made a lot of people go, I guess he's a good leader. So Trump messed up because Trump was doing the daily press conferences. Then he stopped and his new goal was, I'm just going to pretend like COVID doesn't exist. I'm going to ignore it and hope the American people become numb to it. Well, uh, the people in Trump's campaign finally caught on to it. Oh, my God, this is one of the main things that's killing us in the polls, is that we're just ignoring this pandemic, which has killed 140,000 Americans and rising fast. So he brings it back, and um, these things are great, because now, if you're an astute observer, you could see he drops these little nuggets here and there, which just, he gives away the game. He gives away the game. And this is what's so different about Trump versus, you know, previous Republican presidents is that they, all, they agree on the policies, but the other ones are better at the veneer of respectability. And, you know, Trump really can't cushion the landing in any serious way. So here's Trump talking about what they plan to do with education, and he really gives away the game. Watch this. are not reopened. The funding should go to parents to send their child to public, private, charter, religious, or homeschool of their choice. The key word being choice. If the school is closed, the money should follow the student so the parents and families are in control of their own decisions. So we'd like the money to go to the parents of the student. This way they can make the decision that's best for them. We cannot indefinitely stop 50 million American children from going to school, harming their mental, physical, and emotional development. Reopening our schools is also critical to ensuring that parents can go to work and provide for their families. So he admits that, well, listen, the real reason we have to open the schools is because we need to force people back to school so we could force the parents back to work. And we're going to try, it's basically an attempt to, let's try to force everything back to normal as much as possible. There's only one problem, dude. The elephant in the room is the virus. As long as you're not controlling the virus, things are not going back to normal. And you're not controlling the virus. So you can't, it's kind of amazing that half the time he talks about states' rights and let the states make their own choice when it comes to masks, for example, but then when it comes to schools, he's not saying, hey, states' rights, let them make the decision on their own. He's saying, we're going to try to force them back to school. Us, the federal government, we will force the states to try to go back to school 
by any means necessary, and what he's doing is he's threatening the funding. But, but he says it right there. He goes, well, listen, if they don't open, okay, but now we will allow the funding to be diverted to private schools, charter schools, religious schools, or even homeschooling. So this is, this is Betsy DeVos's dream here because she always wanted to take our public school system, you know, destroy it, and then reintroduce a system of private schools, charter schools, religious schools, and yes, even homeschooling. So this is a, it's an attempt, and it's not so veiled, to kind of destroy our public education system, and they're using the pandemic to serve those ends, which is low. That's dirty. But this is exactly, you know, this is Naomi Klein's shock doctrine. What happens is whenever there's a tragedy, it's exploited by people with a pre-existing, uh, pre-existing agenda, excuse me, not condition, um, and they basically square peg, round hole the situation, and whatever's going on, they'll say, ah, it's okay, we're going to save the day, and, and by that I mean we're going to do the thing that we already wanted to do and pretend like it's the answer. You know, it's like with the Iraq War. You had 9-11, and then, and then you had the establishment trying to say, no, 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 Saddam was working with al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, and Saddam has weapons of mass destruction. We have no choice. We've got to overthrow. This is the answer. The answer is to overthrow Saddam Hussein. Well, come to find out that was total BS, and they had just wanted to overthrow him for a while, and they're just pretending that he had a link to 9-11 when he didn't. I mean, this is, this is a similar mindset. The mindset is we've always wanted to destroy our public education system. We've always wanted to privatize it, have charter schools, have religious schools. There are fewer rules associated with them. We could pay the teachers utter shit. And they're using the pandemic to try to force this agenda into place, which, again, by the way, this is a, a giant reason why he's doing terribly in the polls is because people, people are seeing through it at this point. They see that he's not a leader. They see he doesn't know what he's doing. And they see that, um, you know, on some level, people understand just how much they're getting screwed. Like when you look at the CARES Act, for example, you look at the reaction to COVID and, and the bailouts, it's all the money's going to corporations that are politically connected and wealthy. You know, you have the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, a Goldman Sachs lackey. He's controlling 4 or $5 trillion dollars you know, and, and where that goes in terms of bailout funds, and he's just, it, it's cronyism. He's going to give it to whoever he's buddy-buddy with at the country club. Meanwhile, they're bailing these companies out, and then the companies turn around and fire people anyway. So you had basically corporate socialism implemented, and the people got screwed. You think people don't know that they're getting screwed? What are you going to do? You're going to convince people that, oh, don't worry, that 32% of people that couldn't pay their housing bill? Don't worry, they're not going to realize just how much they're getting screwed. Of course they realize. Of course everybody realizes. So it's too, it's too blatant. It's too brazen. It's too in your face. It's too ridiculous. And pe- people are catching on to it. And this is why Trump, he just keeps going down and down and down more and more in the polls. And it's kind of amazing to see. We haven't seen this big of a walloping um, in modern American history. You know, Biden has been up and he's been up by more than the margin of error the entire race. That's astounding. That may even eclipse um, Bill Clinton versus Dole. And Bill Clinton versus Dole was a walloping. So they can't just, they can't keep getting away with this stuff. 
and now they're being caught stone dead, and he doesn't know how to reverse it. He's got no idea. For all Trump knows, you know, in his mind, he probably thinks the American people want to, like, totally privatize our education system. He might actually believe that. And so whoever's the last person in the room whispering in his ear, he's like, oh, that's wonderful. I think we're going to go in that direction. He doesn't know what he's doing. So anyway, this is the, the new scam, the new trick. Use COVID to try to destroy public schools and privatize the whole thing. And he just admits it here. Private schools, charter schools, religious schools, um, or homeschooling. Force the schools open if they don't open. And by the way, if you're a teacher going to one of these schools in a COVID hotspot, of course you're not going to want it to open. If it doesn't open, okay, well, what are we going to do? We have no choice. We've got to you know, stealth privatize the entire system. We have a giant pandemic, and all these, all these fractures in society are being exacerbated. And um, this is why it feels like a particularly dreary moment. Okay, now we're going to go to Trump's obsession with the cognitive test. So President Trump is totally obsessed with this cognitive test, and uh, he keeps talking about it. He wants Biden to take it. He thinks that, you know, he's going to be able to grandstand and say, see, he didn't do well on the cognitive test. I did amazing on it. So he went on Fox News, and he won't shut up about this freaking test. He's talked about it nonstop. He, he was saying all the time in the past, such a hard test. It's a very hard test, very difficult test. And Chris Wallace, who was interviewing him recently, was like, Bro, they showed a picture of an elephant in the test and said, what is this? <laughs> Trump said, yes, Chris, but I bet you couldn't even get the last five questions. The last five questions are very difficult, Chris. And Chris Wallace says, it says count back from 100 by 7. <laughs> so anyway, he got caught stone dead, like, you know, bragging about this thing, which is ridiculous to brag about. But he won't let it go. So he goes on Fox News again, and here he is rambling about this test. So they were saying all these different things was going all over. Whichever stuck, none of it stuck, fortunately. But one of the reasons it didn't is that I took a test. I said to the doctor, it was Dr. Ronnie Jackson, I said, is there some kind of a test, an acuity test? And he said there actually is, and he named it, whatever it might be. And it was 30 or 35 questions. The first questions are very easy. The last questions are much more difficult, uh, like a memory question. It's uh, like you'll go person, woman, man, camera, TV. So they say, could you repeat that? So I said, yeah. So it's person, woman, man, camera, TV. Okay, that's very good. If you get it in order, you get extra points. If you... Okay, now he's asking you other questions, other questions, and then 10 minutes, 15, 20 minutes later, say, remember the first question? Not the first, but the tenth question? Give us that again. Can you do that again? And you go, person, woman, man, camera, TV. If you get it in order, you get extra points. He said, nobody gets it in order. It's actually not that easy, but for me it was easy. And... That's not an easy question. In other words, they ask it to you, they give you five names, and you have to repeat them, and that's okay. If you repeat them out of order, it's okay, but, but you know, it's not as good. 
but then when you go back about 20, 25 minutes later and they say, go back to that question, they don't tell you this, go back to that question and repeat them. Can you do it? And you go, person, woman, man, camera, TV. They say, that's amazing. How did you do that? I do it because I have like a good memory because I'm cognitively there. Oh, man. I don't know how to get this message through to Trump and people like Trump, but they have to understand that if you really want people to think you're a genius, if you really want people to think you're on another level, the last thing you should ever do is, like, say stuff like this. It's like when Kanye West all the time, I'm a genius. I mean, Bertrand Russell and Albert Einstein and brilliant people throughout history are not rubbing it in people's faces that they're geniuses. You don't have to say it because everybody would be saying it about you. There's no reason to be like, I'm a genius. Did you know I'm a genius? And this is like the equivalent of that. I did so well. I did so wonderfully on this cognitive test. It was really something special. It was really something so beautiful. And, you know, other people, maybe they don't do as well. I like how he acts like the, the people who would be giving him such a test would say, Sir, <laughs> sir, how did you do that? That's so amazing. Is it really that amazing? It, I'm not, I don't know what percentage of people would get the thing in order or whatever, but is it really that amazing to, you know, get it in order and then, you know, come back, whatever, five, ten minutes later and get it again? Really, is it that amazing where the people giving the test, Sir, we've never seen this before. This is a rare level of genius. I'm not sure we've ever hit this point before. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Uh, and the other hilarious thing is he is without a doubt, he went with things that were in his vicinity. So he said, uh, person, woman, man, camera, TV. <laughs> like that's all stuff that's in, in his immediate vicinity. And so he's like, okay, let me go with something that I can remember and so he just, you know, lists off a bunch of things that are around him. Oh, my God, man. Dude, what are you doing? I mean, it's funny, but it also becomes incredibly sad when you realize that as he's doing this nonsense, we have a pandemic and 140,000 people are dead and millions of people have had COVID. And the real unemployment rate is about 20%. And over 30% of people can't pay their housing bill. And about 28 million people might be homeless within the next year or two. About 40% of restaurants are on the brink of going under. I mean, this is, and as all that's going on, you got President Numbnuts is like, so I took a test, I took a test, it went really well, it went phenomenally well. And what I would do is I would say the things in the order, and then I was able to say them again in the same order a little bit later, and people said, sir, this is amazing. This is so amazing. <laughs> It's so sad that we're literally relying on somebody to control foreign policy, foreign affairs, and he didn't know the difference between Hamas and Hezbollah. Now, you might not know the difference. You're not president, nor are you running for president. He didn't know the difference between Hamas and Hezbollah. He didn't know the difference between Sunni and Shia. This is a guy who 
probably had no idea what a marginal tax rate was before he became president of the United States. So, so he ends up bragging about stuff like this. It's cognitive test nonsense. And by the way, as I've said before, when it comes to Joe Biden, I don't think the problem is that he wouldn't do fine on one of these cognitive tests. I think the problem is that he's slow. He's not all there anymore. You know, there's a lag. And he definitely, even as recently as 2016, he was with it and whip smart. Now, putting ideology aside, he was with it. He was there in 2016. Now he's slowly slipping away. But, you know, there is a philosophical question to be asked. Would somebody prefer somebody they massively ideologically disagree with in every way who is a little bit sharper mentally or somebody who you agree with more philosophically or ideologically and they're a little bit less there mentally? You know, I mean, I think that that's an interesting philosophical question, but the fact that Trump thinks he's like, you know, he, he just got a touchdown and he's spiking the football in the end zone, bro, this is embarrassing. This is like when Trump always said it, too. I brought up Kanye before, but Trump always said it, too. You know, I'm like, I'm like a really smart person. You know who doesn't say that? A really smart person. They'd never say that. Ever. <laughs> it's like when a guy's like, oh, yeah, I got a giant dick, bro. Giant dick. It's so big. Nobody asks you about your dick, bro. Like, why are you, why are you talking about your dick? It's that overcompensation thing. Like, oh, yeah? Well, how about this? How about what? Nobody was thinking about that. Nobody cares about that. What are you talking about? Like, what are you doing? I mean, in my mind, I look at this stuff, and the, the first thing that always comes to my mind is, like, this is a dude who wouldn't even do a, a federal mask mandate from early on in the pandemic when that alone would have saved so many lives. And so you can't, like, brag about how with it you are cognitively and how awesome, you know, you make really intelligent decisions when, like, you couldn't even get wearing a mask during a pandemic is a very good thing and something that should probably be universal so we save lives. You couldn't even get that. And I was going to brag about person, woman, man, camera, TV. This is really smart. This is genius stuff here. Maybe you don't understand it. Maybe it's above your level. This is really smart stuff here. I'm, you know, I know how smart I am. I know how brilliant I am. I'd like to see Biden take that test. I'd like to see Biden take that test. I don't think he would do so well. Imagine using this line of attack against Joe Biden. I did decent on a basic cognitive test. I should clearly be president. <laughs> Oh, we live in a nightmare. All right, now we're going to go to Joe Biden shoving his foot in his mouth. So Joe Biden shoved his foot in his mouth in one of his live streams. Uh, Here's the moment that went viral. No sitting president has ever done this. Never, never, never. No Republican president has done this. No Democratic president. We've had racists 
and they've existed and they've tried to get elected president. He's the first one that has. He's the first racist that's gotten elected president in the United States. <laughs> Even if you're as kind as humanly possible in your interpretation of what he's saying here, you know, you would say, oh, he means modern American history, not all of American history. Okay, but even that's bullshit. Even that's not true. The short memories we have in the Trump era, because people are so quick to want to burn Trump, that they're just willing to, like, totally forgive the entire Republican establishment, which has been running on the Southern strategy since the 1960s. They're going to forgive all that. You're going to forgive all that because Trump bad. They're going to forgive the Iraq war, by the way. When you look at what happened with the Iraq war, let me ask you a question. Would George W. Bush have waged an illegal and offensive war on a country that didn't attack us if the people in that country had white skin? Would he have killed 200,000 Swedish people? Is that something that would have happened? No. So can you say there's certainly a tinge of bigotry in the decision-making process on that front? Listen, it's more about the geopolitical you know, strategy and jacking the natural resources and all that stuff. I'm willing to grant all that. But there is a certain level of dehumanization that's reserved for black and brown people that is not extended to white folks. So for him to say he's the most racist president or he's the first elected racist or something, I'm done even being kind in my interpretation. He said what he said. I'm not willing to grant him the like, oh, he only meant modern American history. Like I said, that's wrong also. But if you look at all of American history... At least 12 presidents own slaves. 12. 12. You have the Native American genocide. You have a Japanese internment. I mean, keep it real. When you look at the history of the United States, it is absolutely littered with vicious bigots. There was a time when it was just the duh position. It was just the default position. I mean, even, you know, Lincoln free the slaves, but go back and look at some of the things he said when it comes to the races. It ain't pretty. It doesn't mesh with, with what we view today as the norm. So for him to say something like this, and, and guys, here's the main point, and this is why we're talking about this. There is this instinct among neoliberal corporate Democrats, and the instinct is define Trump as the aberration from the norm. And that is a fundamentally incorrect worldview. Trump is not the aberration from the norm. He's actually the culmination of the norm of American politics. So the fact that you have a totally rotted, corrupt neoliberal establishment led to the rise of the fake populist Donald Trump who pretended to be an outsider who was going to change stuff. It's not like Everything was fine, everything was going swimmingly, and then this one bad guy came in power, and he made all the bad decisions, and we just need to get back to that better, calmer time beforehand when everything was fine. But everything before wasn't fine. And you can't wash away the sins of not just the Republican establishment, but also the Democratic establishment. You can't just say, before him, everything was hunky-dory. Because make no mistake about it, that is exactly what Joe Biden believes. Before Trump, everything was hunky-dory. And he was the vice president for eight years before Trump. So, of course, he's going to defend, you know, his legacy, his time in office, his decision-making. But he wouldn't reckon with the fact that, at least in part, it was because of Biden's decisions that led to the rise of Donald Trump. 
So this is this instinct that I need to go away. This is this instinct that drives me crazy. And it's people who, it's sort of like a lazy assumption that disregards the preponderance of the evidence as to just how broken, corrupt, rotten this system is. So stop, stop acting like Trump is a unique evil among U.S. presidents. Trump actually fits in swimmingly. He's the culmination of American imperialism, American capitalism, a broken established order and status quo. He's the culmination of that. So he's the logical outgrowth of a system like we had. He's not, you know, somebody who came in, got power, and the only reason he got power is because all his people are irredeemable deplorables, and he made all the bad decisions, and we just need to go back to how it was beforehand. That is definitely Joe Biden's mindset, and it's definitely incorrect, and this is just like an extreme version of just how much he believes that worldview, to the point where he'd casually say, like, yeah, he's the first racist elected. Stunning ignorance. Okay, next. Next, next, next. <clears throat> All right, so I want to give everybody a little bit of an update on a story that we covered last time. Um, in the House of Representatives, only, I believe it was 93 Democrats, or 93 Congress people overall, maybe there was like a handful of Republicans in there, but only 93 representatives agreed that we should cut the Pentagon budget by 10%. Now, 10% is nothing. These people should be willing to cut it by 40 or 50%. But okay, 10%, we got something. But only 93 Congress people believe that. So... Over 100 Democrats sided with Republicans and said, no, we don't want to cut the Pentagon budget by 10%. That's abysmal. That's disastrous. Uh, let's not mince words here. That's pro-imperialism. They're pro-imperialism. Um, and in the Senate, we had similar results. I believe there were only 23 senators who said, yes, let's cut the military budget by 10%. So that means a lot of Democrats said, no, I don't want to cut it by 10%. Even though we already spend more than the next 10 biggest militaries in the world combined, I don't want to cut it by 10%. Even though, you know, we waste all the money in the world on war and on corporate bailouts, but we don't have money for a UBI. We don't have money for Medicare for all, even in a pandemic. We don't have money for our crumbling infrastructure, which gets a grade of D+. They don't care about any of that. You want to know why? Because they're beholden to the military-industrial complex. So look at this tweet because this says it all. Um, Stephen Semler says, Here are all the Democrats who voted against Bernie Sanders' amendment that would have reduced military spending by only 10%. Listen to this fact. Dems who voted no accepted, on average, $211,372 from the defense industry so far, uh, from the defense industry so far in this election cycle 
That's $70,918 more compared to Dems who voted yes. All right, so even the Democrats who said, yes, we should cut the military budget by 10%, even they, on average, took over $100,000 from the defense industry. All right, I'm not letting that go. That's abysmal. This is something that definitely weighs on the minds of these senators before they cast a vote. Hey, when I run again, am I not going to get the over $100,000 that I got from the defense industry if I vote this way? Can I afford to leave that much money on the table for my reelection efforts? You need money to get reelected. If I snub these special interests and lobbyists and donors, well, then they're going to screw me and I'm going to lose my career. So I got to do the right thing here. I got to do the right thing, which is what they want. They want me to say, don't cut it 10%. So even the ones who voted the right way, it required bravery to stand up to their donors and be like, no, I, I can't do this. It shouldn't require bravery to do what is obviously the correct thing. Like, it, And the crazy thing is, again, it's only 10%. It's not even 40% or 50%. So to even stand up for a 10% military cut, it required bravery. And you wonder why things are so messed up. Because you have these interests pulling the politicians in the wrong direction. But again, the people who voted the wrong way on this, they accepted $211,372 on average from the defense industry. Guys, this is, this is probably the biggest reason why they're doing what they're doing. And this is what drives me crazy about the media, for example. They refuse to call a spade a spade. They refuse to talk about the dynamic in Washington, D.C. as it actually exists. So there's not, they pretend like, oh, everybody's just having a reasonable debate and discussion about what's the best policy direction. The gentleman from Kentucky thinks this. Really, well, the gentlewoman from Minnesota thinks the following. Let's have an ideological and philosophical debate about this issue. That's not what they're doing. What they're doing is weighing the money question. How much money am I leaving uh, you know, on the table for my re-election campaign if I do the right thing and support military cuts? Am I also leaving fodder to be smeared as you know, anti-military by some Republican opponent? So the things that they're weighing, they're not weighing the merits of the issue. They're not, they don't think in ideological and philosophical terms. Corruption is a huge part of this. If the media was doing their damn job and, you know, if the world made sense, that would be called out. That would be called out. Instead, they vote the wrong way and then hope that the people don't notice and hope that they can keep getting that sweet, sweet campaign cash. So, listen, the media doesn't do their job, so I'm here to tell you guys who these corrupt sellout goons are, the people who genuflect to the military-industrial complex and are willing to pay to play to get along. If you can't even agree to a 10% military cut, you're beyond useless. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear your vote blue no matter who crap. Okay, so who voted the wrong way? Kamala Harris, Kuhn, Senator Kuhn, Senator Carper, Senator Menendez, unsurprising, Senator Rosen, Senator Whitehouse, Senator Cort Cortez Mastro, uh, Senator Hassan, Stabenow, Senator Sherrod Brown voted the wrong way. That's upsetting. Kirsten Sinema voted the wrong way. Uh, 
Michael Bennett, Diane Feinstein, Joe Manchin, Tammy Duckworth, Doug Jones, um, Senator Tester, Senator Peters, Senator Heinrich, Senator Shaheen, Senator Warner, Senator Tim Kaine, and Senator Reid. They all voted the wrong way. And they are banking on the media not telling you that this is what they did. They try to hide votes like this so the public doesn't see, and then they go running to, you know, Honeywell, for example. They go running to Raytheon and Boeing and all these defense contractors, the military-industrial complex, and they say, okay, I did your bidding. Now hook me up for my reelection. This is the way the system works, man. This is the way the system works. So you can't, listen, you can't get mad at people when they reject your vote blue no matter who shit. Because this is Democrats being Republican. That's what this is. This is Democrats being Republican. So if you're mad at somebody because they don't want to vote for one of these characters, well, then what you're doing is you're defending Republican policies. You are acting in a pro-Republican fashion. That's what you're doing. So do we believe in something or do we not believe in anything? How many of, how, when you look at your values, how many of them are you willing to disregard? Are you willing to ignore 5% of your values, 10%, 50%, 80%? At what point can you comfortably say, you know what, all I'm doing is, feeding this system, which I claim to despise. So, you know, take your blue no matter who crap and shove it because you can't abandon everything you believe in in service of some abstract, silly goal of let my team win. But if your team is doing the same thing as the other team, then are they really your team? Is that really your team? And you can't say, like, oh, this is purity nonsense, when these are are not ancillary issues. These are core issues. These are core issues uh, to what it means to be on the left. If you can't even agree to a 10% military cut, you're saying, in no uncertain terms, I'm pro-imperialism. By the way, Ilhan Omar proposed something the other day to speed up the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Of course, I don't remember the exact number, but a giant number of Democrats were like, no, we're against that. So you don't want to get out of the war that we've been in for 19 years with no end in sight, no definition of victory. And you don't want to cut the military budget 10%. And you want people to shut up and vote blue no matter who? When apparently voting blue is voting red? That's, that's just Republican stuff. That's all that is. I just, I can't... The mindless drones who refuse to think about this thing in an objective way, drive me crazy. They drive me crazy. What more would it take? Is there nothing that a Democrat could do to make you say, you know what, not you. You're done. I'm done with you. Is there nothing? So they can do anything. But as long as they call themselves a Democrat, you're like, okay, rock on. Oh, man. All of that anger that's directed at lefties for saying, all right, you know what, I'm done. I check out of this system. All of that anger should be directed at the politicians who are voting the wrong way. It ain't on these voters to, you know, 
change everything they believe in to pick a shitty politician and play the lesser evilism game. All that anger should be pointed at these politicians when they do these terrible votes. The, the offices of all of these senators should be bombarded with phone calls today. Bombarded by people saying, are you fucking kidding me? You couldn't even support a 10% military cut. Have you seen the military budget? Have you seen who's the commander-in-chief, by the way? All this faux resistance of Donald Trump, and then they turn around and give him more money than he ever asked for for the military. That's not resistance. That's not resistance at all. That's assistance. So all the anger at the left should be redirected towards the Democratic politicians who refuse to do Democratic policies. So this drives me crazy. And of course, like I said, this is going to get no real coverage, no real talk, um, no media analysis about why, why did they vote this way. Oh, would you look at that? They took over $200,000 respectively on average from the defense industry. They're not going to talk about any of this stuff. And you have to go to a loudmouth YouTuber rambling in order to get even the tiniest semblance of truth. That's an indictment on the entire system, the media, the politicians. It's an indictment on all of it. And it's just, um, you know, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. Only 93 in the House did the right thing, and I think the number was only 23 in the Senate. So what that means is even if you get Democratic supermajorities, you're not going to get left-wing goals through unless you absolutely grow a pair, have a spine, and plant some flags and bully these corporate Democrats into doing our will. Bully them. Bully them. Make them feel like if they vote the wrong way, their career's guaranteed to be over. Guaranteed. It's the only way to get anything done. And anybody who tries to gaslight you and act like, no, 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 don't bully them because they got a D by their name, they're also part of the problem. Okay, next. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin spoke to the media about what the government is doing to respond to coronavirus next. Um, Everything that they've done so far has basically been a giant giveaway to corporate America and just crumbs for regular people. Let's see what he's saying now. But the fundamental issue, and we all acknowledged, there was a technical problem where we were in emergency last time, so we instituted this quickly. And in certain cases, people were paid more to stay home than they were to work. And I think that's something that the American public understands. We're not going to use taxpayer money to pay people more to stay home. So we're going to transition to a, uh, a UI system that is based upon wage replacement. We've talked about approximately 70% wage replacement. And uh, we're just going through the mechanics of that. All right, so so let's talk this through. 
a 70% wage replacement would be a net cut based off of the way the system is already working now. Now everything's going to expire, so they have to determine what to do from here on out, but that would be more of a cut than what we had previously. Now, also, I don't think any kind of wage replacement system at this late date can be implemented fast enough because we already, we've already seen how antiquated and outdated and primitive a lot of these unemployment systems are, and so they're already overburdened, and now you want to make it a more complex um, way in order to get funds to people, you can't. Funny enough, these are Republicans. They're supposed to be, in theory, anti-bureaucracy. They're actually asking to add another layer of bureaucracy here, which is going to complicate the process even further, and you're not going to be able to get the money out to people you know, as soon as they need it. So there's a bunch of problems with it up front. Now, he said there early. See, this is amazing. He said there early. Well, there were some people who were paid more to stay home than to work, and that's not okay. But the solution to that is raise wages, not take away more of the money that they're getting now as a result of the coronavirus. See, this is, they always flip it. They always say like, oh, okay, some people are getting paid more to stay home. So you're incentivizing people to stay home. Okay, if you want to incentivize them to get back to the workplace, you should raise wages. But another question is, if somebody's making more staying home than they were at their job, what if at their job beforehand they weren't making enough money to survive? Because the minimum wage in this country is not a living wage. You can't afford a, a, you know, a one-bedroom apartment anywhere in the country on just a minimum wage. You can't do it. You can't do it. So if they weren't making enough money to survive before, and now they just happen to get lucky to get a little bit of a pay increase under you know, the unemployment system with COVID when they can't work anyway because the jobs are gone, I say, God bless them. Good. Give them a little bit of a breather. Give them a little bit of a break from this freaking hamster wheel life where they're on the grind all the time, and even when they're working hard every single day, they can't make enough money to survive. Are you kidding me? By the way, I'm going to highly recommend that everybody um, reads the Reddit unemployment thing, because it is amazing. When you read the post there, it's incredible. People's lives were totally upended. COVID has destroyed so many lives, destroyed so many jobs. This idea that like the first thing we should be worried about is you know, incentivizing people to go back to work. There's still a pandemic, and it's ripping through the country, and there just aren't as many jobs as there were before. A lot of these job losses that we've seen are permanent. They're permanent. In many cases, people have nowhere to go back to. They have nowhere to go back to. And they're acting like, well, the problem is we need to incentivize more work incentivize people to go back out in a pandemic that's uncontrolled, you shouldn't want to do that. You should want to get the pandemic under control. Do your job and get the pandemic under control, and then things would naturally pick up and things would slowly but surely, you know, build back up to some semblance of normalcy. But as long as you've got 140,000 people dead, as long as you've got millions of people with COVID, as long as it, it, it's spreading uncontrolled, you can't, like, I'm going to try to incentivize people to go back to a job where they don't even make enough money to survive. I mean, what a joke this is. So um, what they look like they're going to settle on is one more, one more $1,200 payment um, stimulus check. They may, they may keep it exactly like it was last time or even limit more the people who get it. 
But then on top of that, they are trying to determine what to do with the unemployment system. Um, the Republicans do not want to ex extend the $600 extra unemployment benefit. Now they're talking about the idea that I just laid out here, the 70% wage replacement. Listen, at this late date, what we should have done early on is copy the rest of the developed world, do what Germany did, for example, where if we're going to shut down, okay, you shut down, but the government steps in, pays 75% of everybody's wages. They say you're not, nobody's fired, you're just furloughed. Because then the unemployment rate would still be 3% here, as opposed to the real unemployment rate now is 20%. It's officially like 11 or 12. But if we, if we were going to go down this path with, with the wage replacement and everything and temporarily nationalizing wages, you had to do that from the beginning. See, now everybody's fired. So everybody's fired. You can't just do wage replacement because what about people who don't have wage anymore? Um, it's too late. It's too late is the bottom line to do the wage replacement idea. It's too late to temporarily nationalize wages, particularly because you didn't protect the jobs early on. So now that we're in that position, there's only one idea which is really the correct idea, universal basic income. It's the only way. If you add another layer of bureaucracy, it's, the money's going to take too long to get to people. What, peop, what we should be talking about is $2,000 a month for everybody on a recurring basis. That's, that's what we need to do. That's what we need to do. Universal basic income, $2,000 a month, at the very least for the duration of the crisis, I would be in favor of you know, doing Social Security for all, which is uh, continuously, it just keeps going. But that's the fastest, easiest way to try to ameliorate these problems that people are feeling, is you do a universal basic income every single month, $2,000 at the very least for the duration of the crisis. And you do it, you can do it in the, in the debit cards because you can get it out quick that way. Um, and I think that's, that's the best, best path forward. I think right now we're basically rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And any kind of extra layer of bureaucracy that they add is, means a bigger headache, means it's not going to get out fast enough, means people are screwed. And you've got to remember, guys, we're dealing with a system where 32% of people didn't make their housing payment in July. We're dealing with a system where 28 million might be homeless in the next year or two. We're dealing with a system where 40% of restaurants could go under. We're dealing with a system that's collapsing in on itself. 20% real unemployment. A lot of people who have jobs still took giant pay cuts. Um, we're not doing enough. We're not doing enough. We need to do more, and we need to do it right now. And so, you know... I think that what they're talking about here, since it's a net cut, is not a good idea. And I think that the concern, again, he said, listen, we, we can't pay people more to stay home than to work. Okay, but like I just said, what happened if we're, when they worked, they didn't make enough money to survive? Then you actually should be paying them more because they should have enough money to survive. But beyond that, this is coming from the freaking guy who controls $5 trillion and made it rain on corporations with corporate socialism in uh, the CARES Act. So you certainly are paying corporations. You certainly have fully socialized that system for your you know, crony capitalist buddies who are actually corporatists. 
So it's okay for corporations money for nothing because, hey, there's a pandemic. What are we going to do? We, we got to keep the system afloat. So just give the corporations whatever they want. Let them loot the treasury. But for regular people, no, 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 no. Can't do that. We got to incentivize work. We can't have people get money for nothing. Only the corporations can get money for nothing. You see who they're really working for? You see who they're really beholden to? And it's no surprise because Steve Mnuchin is a Goldman Sachs lackey, and this is the exact kind of Goldman Sachs brainworms that I would expect him to have. All right. Next. We are going to talk about Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi, bitch. Nancy Pelosi has a new nickname for Donald Trump. This went viral on Twitter. Take a look. Get to the heart of it. At the point of all of this is this president, I have a new name for him, Mr. Make Matters Worse. He has made matters worse from the start. Delay, denial, it's a hoax, it'll go away magically, it's a miracle, and all the rest. Mr. Make Matters Worse. (laughs) So lame, they're so lame. (laughs) So here's here's the thing, man. Democrats really offer nothing but token, symbolic resistance to Trump. Because Nancy Pelosi helped expand Trump's spying powers. Gave him more NSA spying capabilities. She gave him more money in his military budget than he was even asking for. In substantive ways, She's right there with him. I mean, when you look at the terms of the CARES Act, it was a giant giveaway to corporate America. And they used COVID-19 to justify doing total corporate socialism, letting corporations loot the treasury. So you name the issue, and I could give you a variety of ways in which Nancy Pelosi is an enabler of Donald Trump and an enabler of a right-wing agenda. So all they have left are token, symbolic gestures of resistance, like when she ripped up the speech, for example, like when she gave the condescending clap for the State of the Union address. So that's all they got. But I think the thing that drives me the most crazy is that they even suck at the token, symbolic resistance. It's one thing to substantively enable Trump, but at least put on a good show of of symbolic resistance. They're not even putting on a good show of symbolic resistance. Mr. Make Matters Worse? (laughs) That's what you're going with? Mr. Make Matters Worse. They're so lame. Oh, my God, they're so lame. Guys, this is what neoliberal corporatists, this is what they do. This is what they do. They protect the status quo. They protect business as usual. They enable Republican presidents. They embolden Republican presidents. They, uh, you know, further deregulate corporations and bail them out and let them loot the treasury. 
they continue the military-industrial complex and the giant military budgets and the NSA spying and all this stuff, and then they turn around and give you the lamest of lame symbolic gestures of faux resistance. And the craziest thing is people don't connect the dots. And there really is a, a healthy contingent of, you know, slay Queen Pelosi on Twitter. Like, that's a thing. It's a thing that you have. And the funniest part to me is when you see, like, this intersection of people who are out in the streets, Black Lives Matter protesters, they're posturing, like, they're leftists who want to tear down the system, and then they're, like, massively pro-Pelosi. And it's like, oh, so you just don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You just don't know what you're doing. You don't know what she stands for. You're just ignorant about all this stuff, and you're just posturing. It's like empty virtue signaling. I'm on the right side of history, so I guess, like, BLM and I'm a leftist, but yay, slay Pelosi, yay! It's like, oh, you're just really confused. You're uneducated on this stuff. That has to be the case. Like, the new thing is now there's, a, there's this giant fight going on in left-wing circles because there were some accusations against Shahid Batar. Um, of him, you know, being a bad boss on the one hand, but then there were also allegations of uh, sexual harassment. But then come to find out that the person who did the allegations of sexual harassment, they had done false allegations previously. So you look at this mess, and what I have to say to you guys is, it is embarrassing how easy it is to undermine the left. It is so easy for corporate Democrats or Republicans to weaponize your ideology against you. If your ideology is, yeah, I take no nonsense, I'm principled on all this stuff, and then all it takes is one BS accusation of sexual harassment, BS accusation of being a rude or mean boss, and then it's like, all right, we're done. Never Shahid Batar. Well, congratulations on never, ever, 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 ever being able to win power and get your policy goals implemented because you get played for a sucker really easily. They play you like a fiddle. It's the easiest thing in the world for Republicans or corporate Democrats to undermine the left. DSA immediately released a statement throwing Shahid under the bus because they think that politics is just an expression of, you know, personal virtue. Like, that's the point of politics. I'm against bad things like sexual harassment. Oh, congratulations, bro! Congratulations! We didn't know that! Oh, we didn't know that! See, I thought the default was that everybody should be against those things. No, no, no. You want to make sure everybody really knows. I'm against it. It's bad. I'm against it. Evidence? You need evidence? (laughs) Evidence. Forget evidence. I'm against it. Therefore, even if there's a 1% chance that maybe it's true, gone, gone. And then you enable Pelosi, which enables the wars, which enables the illegal spying, which enables Donald Trump, which enables, you know, in turn, every single disastrous thing you could ever imagine. But at least I feel morally pure because I decided to throw somebody under the bus who's actually fighting for the right things over the tiniest of infractions, one of which is a bullshit accusation and the other one is just all a matter of perception as to how bad of a boss he was. So, I mean, this is the stuff that drives me crazy. This lame, faux-resistance nonsense will continue to win the day, and the neoliberals and the corporatists and the Republicans will keep winning if the left doesn't smarten up and recognize what's going on. Recognize how easy it is to weaponize your own beliefs against you in a comical way, where you, know, you end up chopping off your own leg 
and thinking that, you know, you're somehow winning. Honestly, it's embarrassing. You got to be strategic, man. You got to be strategic. You got to be intelligent. If you actually care about getting Medicare for all and free college and a living wage and ending the drug war and a Green New Deal, if you actually care about any of this stuff, you got to get smarter. You got to get more ruthless and more strategic. Or else we're, you know, doomed to see this for the rest of history. Far-right authoritarian Republicans running roughshod doing whatever the hell they want. And then the only symbols of token resistance are stuff like this. I gave him a bad nickname. It's so mean. I'm so mean. And then you got a bunch of idiots like, yeah! Slay queen! Yes! Give him billions more for his military! Yes! Depressing. Okay, let me take a break. When we come back, um, we have Maria Bartiromo casually floating the idea of rank authoritarianism. I got that and much, much more. Stay right there.
back, bitch. All right. <clears throat> Let's talk about Fox Business host Maria Bartiromo and uh, what she casually floated on air. It's one of those moments where it's like, did she know that the camera was on when she said this? Maria Bartiromo casually floated the idea of rank authoritarianism on her show on Fox Business. Watch. Welcome back. We are back live with Acting Secretary of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf. Secretary, we're just going through the situation in Portland. I want to get to the other major cities of our country and the violence happening there, but why can't, before we, we finish on Portland, why can't you just arrest the leadership in Portland because of their uh, you know, ignoring what's really happening on the ground. Well, we absolutely uh, are doing that. So we're working with the FBI there in Portland, with the U.S. Attorney's Office there in Portland, uh, to address the leaders uh, that are organizing this and then going after them. We're also making arrests every night. Uh, we made more than uh, seven or eight arrests last night, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, we're continue to hold these criminals accountable. She was just like, hey, why not arrest, you know, state and local officials who aren't doing their job right? In your eyes. In your eyes. Okay, that's, she's just like casually asking, hey, if they don't do a fascism, why don't you do a fascism? And just arrest the state and local officials who you don't agree with. Can you imagine the reaction if you just flip the parties here for a second? Imagine it was Republican state and local officials and a Democratic president. Would Maria Bartiromo be like, I don't get it. Why doesn't the Democratic president just arrest all the Republican officials in the states and, and in, in you know, the cities who aren't doing their job exactly as you'd want them to? And she, this woman has been on TV for like decades. And this is how deeply she thought through, you know, different political philosophies and ideologies. To the point where she just casually floats like, yeah, just arrest the, I don't see, what's the problem? The problem is that would be unconstitutional, that would be authoritarian, that would be fascistic, that would be tyrannical. It, it's amazing how quickly we've seen so many people on the right flip from this, like, I have a principled stance in favor of small government view to, like, I don't get it. Just send in the stormtroopers and arrest the people who you disagree with. What's the problem? By the way, so many libertarians. You want to talk about a pickle for the libertarians? (laughs) The libertarians have, you know... They're supposed to be the most principled in favor of small government. Um, but in a situation like this, when you see people who are out in the streets protesting, who are clearly on the left, and they're anarchists, and they're Marxists, and there's Antifa, and there are more normie Democrats or whatever, but like, they know that the protesters are on the left. And so then the libertarians are in a pickle, and they're like, hmm, 
In this instance, I want to support the jackbooted government thugs, but my whole political philosophy and ideology is based on jackbooted government thugs being wrong and bad, so what do I do here? It really is scary, man. And again, you know, it's moments like this where you do, you truly do realize how few principled voices there are in the political landscape. Because, you know, this is as straightforward as it gets in terms of the Constitution and in terms of what's allowed and what's not allowed. You do have these situations where you have these protests. As, as far as I've seen recently, most of the protests are happening in Portland now, okay? And, like, I'm sure that the Portland police are dealing with it however they can in terms of you have to decide where your resources and where your effort and where your attention goes. And, like, when, if somebody's committing some sort of violent act, I'm sure they get arrested. If somebody's trying to burn down buildings, I'm sure they get arrested. But, like, when you have so many people in the streets and so many of them are completely peaceful, what do you do? Well, the federal government, what they want to do, and what Trump has been crystal clear recently about is, oh, we want anybody who defaces a monument or statue to get 10 years in prison, and we want zero tolerance for what's happening in the streets right now. So that's where you get, like we learned from Ken Klippenstein, that you had um, Department of Homeland Security people, Border Patrol people, federal troops showing up dressed in full army gear, military gear, and just taking protesters off the streets and arresting them, even though they don't have the authority to arrest them. And in the midst of watching that, she thinks, because she doesn't like the ideology of the protesters, I don't get it. Why not arrest? the protesters, but also the Democratic officials in this area. They think the Democratic officials are being weak. What, do you, how, what are they supposed to do? What are you supposed to do when there's protests? I'll tell you what you're supposed to do in a free country. You let the protests happen. Yes, you can stop people who are committing violence, of course, but you got to let the protests happen. That's called the First Amendment. That's called freedom of speech. And again, the people who scream the most about freedom of speech are the first to flip when they don't agree ideologically with the people who are protesting. They flip so fast. It's amazing. Oh, man. There's a a stark realization. There's a scary moment when you realize that, yes, a president, a U.S. president could do pretty much anything, and there will always be some segment of the population that will defend it. And I'm not kidding when I say anything. A U.S. president can do anything, anything, and some segment of the population will be like, of course, that's, that's the right move. doesn't matter how extreme you want the thing to get to be. If Trump decided tomorrow to nuke Afghanistan, some people will be like, uh, yeah, of course, I would have done that years ago. Duh. Terrifying thought. But a Fox business host, casually, just arrest the state and local officials. We didn't. Just implement an authoritarian crackdown and fascism. Why not? I don't get it. Just do that. Duh. Scary times, man. All right, next. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ted Yoho are continuing to go back and forth in the public eye. 
Um, so I want to show you the development, what's happened. So when we spoke about this recently, I believe what had happened was Ted Yoho gave his non-apology apology on the floor of Congress. And so I covered that, and, and we discussed how he ended it by saying, like, I will not apologize for my passion. I will not apologize for my God. I will not apologize for my family. It was just all, like, nobody ever told you to apologize for any of those things ever, ever. And you're just, you're trying to, like, change the topic because you got caught being a dick. Just don't off to it. You were a dick. Actually apologize and move on. That's it. He didn't do that. He had to, like, make it a grandiose thing. I'm on the right side, Seth. It's like, okay, just fucking relax. Pipe down, fuckface. But anyway, so um, we covered it, and my commentary was like, wow, Ted Yoho is ridiculous. The thing that pissed me off the most was the thing that he keeps repeating about how um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is, like, telling people to commit crimes if they're poor. He's making it seem like she's giving people the green light to commit crimes. What she was saying was an explanation of where she thinks crime comes from. She's saying, well, of course, poverty will lead to an increase in the crime rate. Because when you don't have anything, those people are more likely to try to steal to get things. Like, that's the point she was making. But he was making it seem like she was morally asserting it is okay and I, would be, I will allow you to, like, commit crimes if you're poor. That's not what she said. But he lied about it and kept repeating it. So anyway, he was super obnoxious with that. Um, and so Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez went on the floor of the House. Here she is responding to his non-apology apology. You're going to see little snippets of that here. And then also I'm going to show you here, Ted Yoho went on Fox News after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez responded to his non-apology. And um, he said some more stuff. So I'll show you what both of them are saying, and then we'll discuss I was walking up the steps of the Capitol when Representative Yoho um, suddenly turned a corner um, and she was accompanied by Representative Roger Williams and accosted me on the steps right here in front of our nation's Capitol. I was minding my own business, walking up um, the steps, and Representative Yoho put his finger in my face. He called me disgusting. He called me crazy. He called me out of my mind. Um, and he called me dangerous. And then he took a few more steps, and after I had recognized his, uh, after I had recognized his, his comments as rude, he walked away and said, I'm rude. You're calling me rude. I took a few steps ahead, and I walked inside and cast my vote, um, because my constituents send me here each and every day to fight for them and to make sure that they are able to keep a roof over their head, that they're able to feed their families, and that they're able to carry their lives with dignity. I walked back out, and there were reporters in the front of the Capitol, and in front of reporters, Representative Yoho called me, and I quote, a fucking bitch. These are the words that Representative Yoho levied against a congresswoman the congresswoman that not only represents New York's 14th congressional district, but every congresswoman and every woman in this country. 
because all of us have had to deal with this in some form, some way, some shape, at some point in our lives. Dehumanizing language is not new. And what we are seeing is that incidents like these are happening in a pattern. This is a pattern of, of an attitude towards women and dehumanization of others. Now, what I am here to say is that this harm that Mr. Yoho levied, it tried to levy against me, was not just an incident directed at me. But when you do that to any woman, what Mr. Yoho did was give permission to other men to do that to his daughters. He gave, in using that language in front of the press, he gave permission to use that language against his wife, his daughters, women in his community. And I am here to stand up to say that is not acceptable. You know, um, I, well, I can go into that, but, you know, that was something, and I just I asked her uh, if we could have a, a, a minute of her time and ask her a question. You did? Because she said you just accosted her. She didn't know what was coming at her. And then she said you called her disgusting. Did you call her disgusting? No, ma'am. I was coming down from voting from the Capitol as I walk across, as I always do. And I was coming up, to, she was coming up the stairs, and I, I, I asked her, I says, hey, do you have a minute? She goes, yes. And we've never had a conversation before. And I wanted to ask her about this policy that she was telling people it was okay to shoplift if you were hungry. And uh, it went backwards from there. So, but did, all right, did, you know, did, did you call her disgusting? And did you suggest that she was no. losing her mind? Did you use those words? You never said she was disgusting. You never said she was losing her mind. No, every, no everything was directed at policy. Uh, when she told me that, yes, she thought it was right for people to go ahead and shoplift if you're hungry, I said, seriously, with as many social programs and faith-based programs and all these other and, and food kitchens around, the best that you can do is to offer people in your district um, to go ahead and shoplift while you're calling at the same time to defund the police. I said, those are just absolutely the most frickin' Uh, crazy policy ideas I've ever had. And I said, your policy ideas are disgusting, and I turned around and walked away. And that now, was when really you turned around and walked away, did you... As that interaction lasted. But these stories are so totally different uh, that the two of you are telling, so it's kind of hard to know, you know, who, who, which version is, is the truth. But when you turned around and walked down the stairs, did you refer to her as a F-word, B-word? No, I, I walked down the steps and I said, this is just such frickin' BS. But, and, and that's all I said. And then a reporter came up to me and said, what was that about? I said, no comment. Did you say this? I said, no comment. And I left. He's saying, I said, this is such fucking BS. She's saying he called me a fucking bitch. Um, she's saying that... He said, you're disgusting, crazy, and out of your mind. He's saying, I didn't say you're disgusting. I said, that's disgusting, talking about a position she has. Uh, he didn't really say that he didn't say she's crazy and out of her mind, though, so he probably said those things for sure. Um, she's, 
she said that he just kind of walked up and started, like, immediately. He's saying, I asked her if she had a minute of her time, if I could have a minute of her time. So, like, there's a, they're saying that it unfolded in different ways, clearly. Um, but the gist of it is that he, at the very least, he said, that's fucking disgusting, crazy, you're out of your mind, and... You know, that's fucking BS or whatever when he was walking away. Look, man, I don't know. Uh, am I more inclined to believe Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez over Ted Yoho? Yes, <laughs> I am. Um, I do have to say, though, wrap it up. We got to go. We got to go. We got to go. Like, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? You know, when you're younger, you look at Congress, you look at politicians, and you think, Oh well, these people who are smarter and better than me are on top of it, are on top of everything. And then you watch something like this unfold, and you're like, "Oh no, that's it's actually not the case at all. They're human beings, and they're deeply flawed human beings. And this is like a high school thing that we're watching unfold here. That's what this is. This is like a high school thing. And um, I have to say, even though the media is having a field day with this, a field day with this. I don't think your average American gives a fuck about the altercation that happened between Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ted Yoho. I don't think your average American gives a fuck. You want to know why? 32% of the country couldn't pay their July housing payment. 28 million Americans could be homeless within the next year or two. 28 million. We have like anywhere from 500,000 to a million right now. We're talking about 28 million. We have a country that's falling apart. We have 20% real unemployment. We have a pandemic where 140,000 people are dead. So I just, we got to stop. Like, we got we to gotta go. We got to go. We got to go. And, you know, listen, you don't, it doesn't require any convincing to me that Ted Yoho is trash. <laughs> like, that doesn't require any convincing at all. He's a Republican congressman who admits that he was on food stamps when he was a kid, and now he supports cutting food stamps. He's, he said, oh, I was poor. I know how terrible it is. He's not even in favor of raising the minimum wage to a living wage. So he wants people to work full time and still be poor. And he was poor. It takes zero convincing to tell me that Ted Yoho is trash. Okay? That's obvious to me. That's clear. But we don't need, that's it. It's over. We don't need to dive into it. You don't need to, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez doing this thing where she's saying, like, by calling me a bitch, he's basically calling all women bitches because he's giving the green light for, you know, people to say it to other women, to say it to his daughter, to say it to his wife or whatever. We get it. He's a piece of trash. Point made. Let's go. Let's move on here. And, you know, unfortunately, I do think that this whole thing, it, it's just a stark reminder that this is the shit they're actually thinking about. This is the shit that they're actually thinking about. This is what they're actually talking about behind closed doors. It is all like high school. And it is all like personal. And yeah, I would hope, because I'm freaking naive as hell, I would have hoped that people in Congress are just sitting around thinking like about ideology 
what their ideology is and their personal philosophies and what policies to, to fix the country. And even if they disagree with me, I would hope that they're thinking through, like, how do we implement a vision to get the country from point A to point B? They're not. They're not. They're flawed people. It's like any workplace anywhere in the country. Flawed people who, you know, are social beings and who care about personal petty drama, unfortunately, probably over the country and what to do to fix it. So at this point, I'm just annoyed. Like, I was somewhat... At, Early on, I remember hearing about the story and going like, oh, like it was interesting. And I was like, all right, let's talk about this. And it just so happened that by the time I did my last segment, um, Ted Yoho had done his ridiculous non-apology apology. And so, you know, we spoke about it after that. But at this point, I'm watching this and I'm going, I just, let, let's go. Let's move on. I don't, I don't care. I don't care. I don't want to think about this. I don't want to talk about this. I want you guys to be bigger than regular people, and I want to move on here. Um, so, it, you know what it seems like to me? It seems like there is sort of this yearning for the continuation of the civility and decorum mindset in D.C. And even that's going away, especially in the era of Trump. And when you look at the Republicans, like Ted Yoho, they're so thoroughly brainwashed by Fox News that he thinks Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is like actively trying to destroy the country, and he thinks she's greenlighting people to commit crimes if they're poor, when what she was doing is trying to explain where she thinks crime comes from, not giving a green light for it or whatever. Um, but this is all too indicative of what's happening in the country right now. You have the Republicans who have totally lost their minds, and they're complete assholes, the, the elected Republicans, I mean. Just, and they've been so brainwashed by Fox News that like, they can't see straight. They think the Democrats are like Satan. But then you have the Democrats, and it's like, what's the focus there? Civility and decorum. Oh, why can't we just get along, and can't you be like a better person? That ship has sailed, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. That ship has sailed. There ain't no hope for these fuckers, okay? <laughs> There's no hope. So you could give a, a thousand grandstanding speeches from now until you're 80, and it ain't going to change Dickie McGee's acts in terms of how they act and, and what they do and the things they say. And so in some ways, I just feel like there's no point in doing the whole, like, let's try to yearn for the days of civility and decorum. And maybe that's me because I have a uniquely thick skin and I'm used to, like, you know, taking all sorts of nonsense. Maybe that's why. But when I look at this, I think there's no reason to even waste our breath trying to do the whole, like, you're treating all women like this and that's unacceptable. Even if he agreed with that point, he still wouldn't care. He'd be like, yeah, so? <laughs> yeah, is what I do. Whoop-de-doo. So, I don't know. I think the Democrats need to, like, get past this yearning for civility and decorum. Ted Yo is a piece of trash. But that's fine. Like, let him be a piece of trash and let the world see who he really is. But for us, there's no reason to, like, you know, try to get him back to some semblance of civility and decorum. This is who they are. Let them rep it. Let them show the world. 
And, you know, meanwhile, if we just swat them aside and we plow forward and focus on policy to improve people's lives, I think that speaks volumes. I really do. I think that speaks volumes. But instead now it's like we're, everybody's dragged into the petty personal drama, and I think everybody looks ridiculous, I have to say. All right, let's make fun of Ben Shapiro. What do you think? What do you all think about that, bruh? I love making fun of Ben Shapiro, bitch. Ben Shapiro um, can't stop having these wonderful moments where he says things that make every reasonable person pause and go, what on earth did you just say, bro? Um, This is who he is. This is who he is. And I I almost want to commend him for his moment of honesty here. But look at his view on empathy and how that fits into politics. Watch. There's only one problem. Okay, empathy is actually kind of bad for politics. The reason that empathy is bad for politics is because it leads you to empathize with people that you are more likely to like, as opposed to people you don't like. Okay, so first of all, the pitch for empathy is actually, there have been several books that are written on this, social science books, talking about how empathy is not actually the best thing for politics, it actually almost deactivates the reasoning centers of your brain. Because when you're empathetic, you don't actually create good policy. He just let it all out, bro. (laughs) So the definition of empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. That's what empathy is. So when we talk about politics and how we craft society... He's saying, hey, leave the instinct to understand and share others' feelings. Leave that aside, because that gets in the way. Okay, not only does that not get in the way, that is the point. That is the point of politics. You don't try to craft a society that appeals to me and me alone and fuck everybody else. You're trying to craft a society that functions well and takes into account everybody who's within that society. And then he said, oh, you know, when you empathize with people, you empathize with people you like, not those you don't like. It's almost like he's admitting what he does. No, Ben, when you try to empathize with people, you only empathize with the ones you like. But actually, you know, when you look at some of the discourse on the left, even in modern American history, it directly disproves exactly what he's saying because what happened post-2016 when Donald Trump won? Well, you had, you know, the hardcore neoliberal corporate Democrats arguing that, well, you know, the only reason Trump won is because his people are irredeemable deplorables and they're racist and bigots, and that's the end of the conversation. And then you had this giant swath of people on the left who made the argument, well, actually, no, not really, because some of Trump's support did come from Rust Belt voters who supported Obama twice and then flipped to Trump. So maybe in their case, it had a lot more to do with 
outsourcing jobs and how Hillary supported bad trade deals and people who died in the Iraq war. A lot of people who had family members who died in the Iraq war supported Trump over Hillary because Hillary was for the war and Trump was against it. So in other words, you're looking at, you are empathizing with why somebody could have voted for Trump, even though you don't agree with that vote for Trump. Hey, what are the, what are the plethora of reasons as to why somebody could be led in that direction? Is it just that they're bad people? Full stop. No, it's, it requires a deeper, more thoughtful, nuanced, and complex analysis than that. So let the left, we, that debate rages on to this day. And one of the core tenets of lefties that I've certainly seen, people I'm familiar with, people, thinkers who I like, they always talk about how, no, I want, when we talk about creating a better society, I'm not just talking about people who I like. I'm talking about people I don't like, too. I, could, I disagree with Ben on pretty much everything. I would never deny him health care under our Medicare for All system. If he has a, a problem, if his kid or something gets sick, I would feel terrible for him, even though I don't agree with him. Because empathy actually is the exact opposite of what he's saying. He's saying, oh, you can only empathize with people in your in-group. No, plenty of people empathize with people who are not in their in-group. So he's almost giving away the game as to how he thinks. In his mind, he thinks, well, yeah, I empathize, but it's with mostly hardcore conservative Republicans. I don't really care about liberals and, and leftists. Well, that says a lot about you. It says nothing about the people on the left, Ben. Because I'll tell you right now, even though I have massive disagreements with so many people, I would never wish harm on them. I would always want these people to have health care, have a good education, have a shot at living a decent life. Of course I empathize with them. Again, he's just giving away too much. But he's making an argument against, quote, the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. When that's like the whole point of politics. So, uh, you know, I had some fun and I went to um, this, the, 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 I can't say the word, thesaurus. I went to the thesaurus and I looked at uh, antonyms of empathy. Because, you know, it stands to reason that this is what he's advocating for. So he wants less empathy in politics. So he wants more of whatever the opposite of empathy is. Well, what's the opposite of empathy? I'll just give you some. The list goes on and on, but this is kind of hilarious. Ben Shapiro would like more hard-heartedness in politics, more mercilessness, more pitilessness, more ruthlessness, more uncharitableness. That's so perfect for Ben. He wants more retribution, revenge, vengeance, Venom, vindictiveness, vitriol, atrocity, barbarity, brutality, cruelty, sadism, savageness, savagery, violence, wantonness, viciousness. He wants more of this in politics. He's actually making an argument for more of that approach in politics. The exact thing which ruins politics. He wants more of that which again says a lot about him, says nothing about the people who disagree with him at all. He's making an argument that empathy leads you to make bad decisions, when empathy should be the cornerstone of every political decision you make. I mean, listen, when you empathize, you understand the feelings of another. So stop and think about it. Somebody is a kid who's sick. They don't have health coverage or they have bad health coverage. They're going to go bankrupt they can't afford the medical bills. In Ben Shapiro's world, 
don't try to understand that family's pain and where they're coming from. In my world, the whole point of politics is, yeah, let's hear them out. Let's see what the issue is. See what the issue is. Okay, so they can't afford it. Well, I think we should have a universal health care system, and that should be taken care of, and you shouldn't go bankrupt. You shouldn't go bankrupt for medical bills. You know, when it comes to war, I sympathize with the plight of American soldiers and their families, people who've died for not very good reasons. I, I empathize with the civilians who we've killed overseas. Ben Shapiro looks at that and goes, no. Empathizing is bad. I don't want to share the feelings of that family that sacrificed massively. I don't want to understand where they're coming from, people who've died overseas, civilians who've died overseas and the lives that were destroyed. That gets in the way. So what he's saying is, funny enough, he wants to only live in the world of theory, which is, by definition, anti-empirical. For me, it's all about empirical reality. I care about what actually works, and I care about how things function. He's saying, forget the empirical reality. we got to live in the world of theory. Sometimes, you know, icky things like other people's feelings get in the way. He's making an argument for more, I'll say it again, some of my favorite ones. Retribution, revenge, vengeance, venom, vindictiveness, and vitriol, and barbarity in politics. He's openly arguing for that. People think this guy's an intellectual. <laughs> there, are, there are many conservative thinkers who are way better than Ben Shapiro and are way more thoughtful. Um, sometimes he just, he says the most absurd things you can imagine. And I think this is a really good example of it here. And I do think, by the way, that there are plenty of conservatives who would disagree with him and be like, well, of course you have to, empathy is like one of the cornerstones of politics, of course. Anytime you have any level of community, whether it's, you know, a group of people who you play a sport with or whether it's your town or whether it gets bigger than that, it's a city. Anytime there's some sense of community, empathy is crucial. It's almost like he's arguing for people being sociopaths or psychopaths and acting like, well, that will lead us to better policy. No. If you're a sociopath or a psychopath, that will lead you to sociopathic and psychopathic policies. That might be good for you, Ben Shapiro, in terms of, I don't know, your wealth creation or whatever it might be, making more money. But it's going to fuck over the rest of society. But he doesn't care because other people's feelings just get in the way. Imagine being attracted to this worldview. I mean, listen, guys, I've said it before, but it's one thing if somebody says to me, you know what, Kyle, you're wrong about quite a bit. And, uh, you know, but we'll talk it out or whatever. There are plenty of people out there, conservatives, who I, I'm, me, I disagree with them 50% of the time. They disagree with me 50% of the time. I'm totally open to that. In fact, I think that's kind of interesting that we could, you know, there's plenty of areas where we go back and forth and, we don't agree, but I want to know where they're coming from, and they want to know where I'm coming from. That's all fine. If somebody tells me I'm wrong about literally everything, period, 100% of what I talk about, and that's what Ben Shapiro would say, well, then I, I have zero respect for you. I think you're, <laughs> I think, I think, I think you're ridiculous. 
Now, unlike Ben, I still want him to have a good life. I still want him to get to have health care and education and a roof over his head, and I wish his family well. But it's got to be a situation like, are you trolling, dude? Are you, pl- are you playing a role? Is your role Mr. Conservative Opinion Guy? But, like, everything, we don't see eye to eye on anything. Well, then I can't, from an intellectual perspective, I think you're comical. Because that's not just disagreement at that point. It's He has to ignore a lot of basic facts to get himself to a position where he would think that I or anybody else out there is wrong 100% of the time. So... If this is attractive to you, okay. Okay. I just think it would be a phase for most people. You know, going through a portion of their lives where maybe they're young, in their teens or whatever, and for whatever reason this worldview is, you know, temporarily attractive to them. There's a lot of people who go through like a libertarian phase, hardcore libertarian phase, Ayn Rand phase. Oh, selfishness actually is virtuous. That's a, that's a very common phase for people go through in high school or college or whatever. Um, But I feel like Ben Shapiro is a similar thing. Like at some point people are going to realize, oh, yeah, that's pretty stupid actually. That's a very dumb thing to say. Believe me, he'll keep them coming too. (laughs) There will be many more instances like this, which could serve as a light bulb moment for many of his viewers. All right, now I'm going to make fun of Dave Rubin, because that's just as fun. So Dave Rubin has so thoroughly and completely flipped worldviews that now he's just a standard conservative pundit. He's just a standard pro-Trump guy. And his political evolution has been kind of funny to watch, because he started out, he was on the TYT network, and he was pretending like you know he was a lefty or whatever, and then he slowly inched a little bit right, the thing that led to him breaking up with TYT in a pretty prominent way was Sam Harris and TYT going at it. And, um, you know, he felt like TYT was treating Sam Harris unfairly and he agrees more with Sam Harris. And then he became, Dave became this kind of like, you know, new atheism guy. And probably he went from left-wing politics to like center-left politics or centrist politics. And, um, then slowly but surely, the, man, that it was mission creep all day. It was like on his show every week it would be, you know, this right-wing guest, that right-wing guest. He would sprinkle in a lefty every now and then very rarely, but then now it's like... <laughs> he went through that whole Prager U thing of like, why I left the left. He For a while he tried to do the, I'm the only sane liberal left, bro. That's me. And then it became... He just admits it. Like, no, no, okay, I'm a right-winger now. Well, now, if I'm not mistaken, he, he either was or is, like, on the Blaze Network, and he still does a bunch of stuff with PragerU. Um, but here he is talking to Michael Knowles, who was, uh, you know, known as the Daily Wire third stringer. And um, I was on some Politicon panel with Michael Knowles. You want to talk about a guy who's just like, he was an actor, by the way, and you could tell. He's got the fake announcer voice thing going on, and it seems like he's trying to play this role. Like, I will also be Mr. Conservative Man. Like, he's not, who knows what he actually really believes. It just seems like it's all an act. But anyway, 
uh, Dave Rubin was speaking to Michael Knowles on his show. I think this is on PragerU. They did like a book club or something, and uh, Dave just flat out says it now. Like, yeah, I'm a Trump guy. Watch. You look, and it seems like no matter who wins the election, no matter which party wins, certain things just keep on happening. We lose more and more of our freedoms. We rack up more and more of our debt. The culture keeps going more and more in one direction. It, it doesn't seem to matter who wins. I dare make a pro-Trump uh, comment. I don't know if I'm allowed. We'll certainly uh, be censored uh, by the Ministry of Truth on the Internet. Somebody's not going to be happy about this. But in many ways, when I was rereading it, I kept thinking, man, what they needed was a Trump. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because what was Trump, or what is Trump? He just sort of broke through all of this. If you're, if you're talking about how do you break the duopoly, how do you break the false choices, how do you break political correctness, all of these things, who has been the greatest breaker of those things? It's been Trump, so it's like, in a weird way, if the book had ended and there suddenly was this person who was just willing to do it for some very bizarre reason, and perhaps he was orange and had weird hair. Yeah. Like, then I guess you see some hope, but you, you don't get the orange I hair. hate to... They're talking about the book 1984. And Dave immediately brought it back to Trump good and political correctness bad. Okay, I think it's a physical law of nature that Dave Rubin redirects every conversation back to political correctness. This political correctness is out of control. This cancel culture is out of control. It's written in the laws of nature that every single political issue goes right back to that for Dave Rubin. Again, they're talking about the book 1984. Like, do you think maybe it would make sense to bring up, I don't know, Endless War? How, you know, you can define... Peace is now defined as endless war. Like, we need the endless war to be peaceful. Did they make a point about that? Did they make a point about, I don't know, maybe NSA spying? Or rank authoritarian government? No, there was nothing about that. This political correctness is out of control. His solution is just, wouldn't it be great if they had like a Trump in 1984? Wouldn't that be great? This is, Rubin paints himself as the free speech guy, and now he's flat out backing a guy who sued Bill Maher over a joke. That's what Donald Trump did. Bill Maher made a joke about how Trump looks like the love child of his mom and an orangutan. And Trump was so triggered, and he's such a snowflake, that he threatened a lawsuit against Bill Maher over a joke. Dave Rubin's whole thing is like, oh my God, isn't the left out of control? Because they get like really triggered over jokes. It's really not cool. They're really anti-free speech. He's backing the president who sued somebody over a joke. He's backing the guy who has now repeatedly said, flag burning should be punished with up to a year in jail. So the free speech guy is backing the president who has come out against a landmark or hallmark free speech ruling that the Supreme Court has. Antonin Scalia famously said, I don't, I mean, I'm as conservative as it gets and I don't agree with burning the flag at all. If I was king, I'd put him in jail, but we have a constitution. I can't do that. That's free speech. Dave Rubin is backing the president who's anti-free speech in the clearest ways. And he fancies himself the free speech guy. And by the way, what's happening right now? What's happening right now is Trump has threatened the Insurrection Act. 
Trump is sending Department of Homeland Security soldiers, effectively, people from the Border Patrol. He's sending them into states and arrest, casually, willy-nilly, arresting protesters. No due process. No following the Constitution. They don't even have the authority to arrest people. So that is as, as against the Constitution you could get. And numbnuts here. Is that, wouldn't it be great? Trump, it would be great to just like, you know, just like break political correctness and stuff. That's what they needed in 1984 was like a Trump to like break the political correctness and stuff. He's a parody of himself now, man. It's just, I love how we did the, how, I might say something pro-Trump. Ooh. Oh, you're so edgy, bro. <laughs> You're so edgy on this right-wing network to say, like, the most banal shit in favor of their favorite politician. Wow. This is what happens when you don't believe in anything. You never believed in it, you know? He just, he wanted to be famous, and he found a lane, and he's, you know, doing everything he can to get famous using this lane. That's it. That's all it is. I love when Michael Knowles said, whichever party wins, you know, the same stuff seems to happen. I heard that point. I'm like, oh, interesting. Is he going to take this point to actually a good place? What does he say? I mean, like, we lose freedom and we gain debt. So we're saying, oh, my God, whichever party wins, the same stuff happens. He doesn't bring up how corporations win. They always win, no matter what. The corruption keeps on going. Uh, the military-industrial complex churns on. We continue to have endless war. We continue to have corruption run the show, which is why the American people never get what they want, according to the polls. Our polling, our, what we want is crystal clear according to the polling data. We never get that stuff. He, didn't, he couldn't even say that. He went right to, like, freedom and debt. Well, your guy is trying to take away the First Amendment freedoms, locking up protesters, saying punish people with a year in jail for flag burning. Anyway, I digress. This is hilarious and sad, but also at this point totally expected. I'm sure he's going to give us so much more material now that he's basically come out of the closet as like a Ben Shapiro, Stephen Crowder, Rush Limbaugh type mindless conservative. So I have two tweets here that uh, perfectly sum up this vapid era of woke corporatism and virtue signaling imperialism. So I'm not going to lie to you guys. These broke me. When I read these tweets, they just broke me. Something inside me permanently snapped. The first one is from Reuters. They say, Chevron diversity ratio to improve as layoffs progress. Chevron diversity ratio to improve as layoffs progress. So we got to fire all these people and they got to lose their job because, you know, we got this economic downturn and there are all these problems. We got to fire people. What are we going to do? But look at the bright side. Now our diversity ratio is improving. I saw somebody tweet the other day. I noticed that none of the federal agents on the streets in Portland, federal troops on the streets in Portland, are women. And they were trying to say that as like a burn to Trump. Like, this guy doesn't even have... 
female stormtroopers unacceptable? I mean, this is the famous hire more women guards tweet, right? Like, that's what this is. This is, you know, we're locking people up in uh, concentration camps, but they're all men. So hire more women guards, bro. Got to make this more diverse. This is happening in real life now. Remember that story? People don't re- probably don't remember this, but there was, I think it was, it was on MSNBC, and they, I think the graphic quite literally said the head, you know, the leaders of the military-industrial complex, it may have said that, but it may have said defense industry too. They're all women now. So like the head of all those big corporations, the defense contractors, Honeywell, Boeing, Raytheon, they're all women now. Oh, no, maybe it was uh, the intelligence agencies, like the deep state or whatever. It's like, oh, they're all women. And they were, talk- they were celebrating that fact. They were celebrating it. Military-industrial complex is diversified now. Amazing. Now we can kill innocent people overseas and have a good gender ratio. Yes. You know, I told you guys all along that this is why you diverting the struggle on the battlefield of symbolism and the culture war is always going to backfire. Because the system does not mind at all conceding on the culture war front and on the symbolism front. They'll give you everything on the symbolism front. As long as you don't substantively address stuff. As long as you don't end the wars. As long as you don't stop, you know... Cambodian sweatshops for making cheap products. As long as you don't stop the cash, cash flow and the corruption, well, we'll give you everything you want. Shit. You know, you'll have uh, billionaire CEOs taking a knee and wearing Black Lives Matter shirts, and that's what they do. Pretend like they're totally down with the struggle. It's really sad. Now, I, I even have a The next one is probably a worse example of this. Mediaite says the following. Senate passes $740 billion defense bill with provision to remove Confederate names off military bases. So, they rejected Bernie's amendment to cut the Pentagon by 10%. They rejected Bernie's amendment to cut the Pentagon by 10%. They approved Warren's amendment of changing the confederate names on the bases so in other words we are pro-imperialism we are pro bloated military budget we are pro being the world police and bullying everybody around the world we are pro stealing natural resources from you know places all around the world all those things that's business as usual that's totally fine We will continue to be the thug on the world stage. We need to be sensitive and woke so we can't have Confederate names for the military bases anymore. Because that would mean we're bad people. The murdering innocent people overseas, endlessly. The giant bloated military budget, which is, you know, a blank check as we don't even, as people don't have health care in this country. People have medical bills. People can't pay their housing bills now because of COVID. That's 
that's fine. That's business as usual. What do you mean? We can't even change. We can't even cut a 10%. What are you, crazy? What are you, crazy? But to show that we're good people and we're evolving with the times, we will no longer have Confederate names for the bases. Do you see why being a leftist is painful? (laughs) I mean, it's painful at times. This is the discourse. This is where we are. I was more right than even I realized when I said they'll always cave on the symbolism first. I didn't expect this, this stark of a view of it. Chevron trying to put a, a smiley face on the layoffs by saying a diversity ratio is improving. The military-industrial complex saying, come on. We care, so like we're not going to keep the Confederate name as they continue to bomb eight different countries and kill civilians and escalate with Venezuela and Iran and forget it. It's endless. See, this is why I'll, I'll end on this point, okay? This is why I'm very, very critical of these mass movements and these protests because I'm a big believer that you're really not going to get much done unless you have very specific, clear demands. People who are marching in the streets for racial justice should have a list of five or ten clear policy changes that they want, including ending the drug war, freeing the nonviolent drug offenders, ending mandatory minimums. There's a bunch of stuff you can do that would substantively address the racist system. But it's not just on that front, it's on anything. If you're part of a mass movement, you need to have the specific demands. We need to end all these wars and only fight wars for defensive reasons. If there's an imminent threat of attack against us, we're getting out of Iraq, we're getting out of Afghanistan, we're doing it now. This kind of specific stuff, we're here for Medicare for all. That's why we're protesting. We will not stop until we get it. Specific demands. Because if you don't have specific demands, if you don't have leaders, all these movements could just be diverted to goofy shit like this. It's goofy. It's goofy. I know you guys are out there protesting after George Floyd was murdered, but we pulled this Golden Girls episode where they wore mud face masks. We're getting rid of Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben. Are you guys done yet? You want to get out of the street? We just, we did the Uncle Ben and the Aunt Jemima thing. That's, that's good, right? See how easy it is to co-opt these movements and defang them? That's what it is. That's defanging. That's what that is. And we're just going to see more of this. They will always concede. Before they even would cut the military budget, 10%, a measly 10%. They'd rather do the... We got rid of the Confederate names and then watch all the idiots in the media fall for it. And me, like, oh, what a wonderful day we have today, good sir. We're putting the past in the past and we're moving forward and being more enlightened human beings. I hear Guantanamo Bay is hiring a transgender security guard to waterboard all of the inmates. That's where we're heading. That's where we're heading. Everybody's got to wise up and notice how the system 
is evolving to still continue the status quo and business as usual while pretending like they're becoming more enlightened. Okay. All right, I am going to do the Rick Wiles story. And that'll be it for the day, y'all. Okay, here we go. Rick Wiles is one of the craziest right-wing hosts in the country, and he is now advocating killing protesters. Mr. Meadows, please tell President Trump that he is now in possession of the bomber bullets. Two billion bomber bullets. You're in possession of them now. You got the bomber bullets. And you can put down the resurrection. I mean the insurrection. You can put it down. You have the bomber bullets in your hands. And you don't have to tolerate this anymore. They were purchased for the purpose of putting down an insurrection. Well, you got one. So put the hollow point bullets to good use and get out there and put down this communist revolution so the rest of us could live our lives peacefully. Yeah, put down the communist revolution of like a couple hundred people in Portland. I think they would appreciate the fact that they're being talked about in these grandiose terms as if like, you know, they're on the brink of overthrowing the White House. Okay, no, but he's quite literally advocating for murder in the streets of protesters. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. We said it earlier in the context of the Maria Bartiromo story. Maria Bartiromo said, I don't get it. Why don't you, the Department of Homeland Security, why don't you arrest the state and local officials in in Portland? I don't get it. Why Why aren't you doing that? Just casually advocating for federal government to, like, overthrow the state and local government because they don't like their politics. Okay, that's rank authoritarianism. What do you want me to say about it? That's what that is. This is one step beyond that. This is like, hey, go get some weapons, go get some guns, and go put down this revolution, this protest. Start shooting. I really mean it when I say there's not a single thing that a U.S. president can't do and have some segment of the population cheered on. Without a doubt. We like to think of ourselves as like, well, I mean, those were back in the day, the primitive times. Right now, we've evolved to a certain point where we've hit a certain bare minimum level of humanity and basic decency. No. No. If Trump actually started lighting up protesters tomorrow, there would be some segment of the population, probably that same 30% that never abandoned them. They'd be like, yeah. Yeah. 
What do you mean? This is what they should be doing. These people were destroying our cities. They were lighting stuff on fire. They're evil people. We need law and order. So, yeah, you've got you to put down some protesters. What are you going to do? I'm telling you, peop- there would be people who defended it, which actually gets to the you know, more significant point here. I'm reminded of a book that I read back in college. I think the name of the book is Ordinary Men. And it's about how in Nazi Germany, not to invoke Godwin's law here, but in Nazi Germany, um, there were these people who were Nazi soldiers and security guards and shit, and it's about how they could do these atrocious, horrific, immoral acts in the day, and then go home at night, hug their kids, kiss their wives, eat dinner, talk about normal things. Like, how is that possible? Because unfortunately, human beings are infinitely malleable, and we rationalize, and we justify. And we never want to see ourselves in the most objective, ruthless light imaginable. We always put the positive spin on the things that we do. To this day, go talk to somebody about the Iraq war, and even if, they, even if somebody's against it, they will frame it as it was a mistake. And we made a mistake. Mistake. Minimum 200,000 civilians dead. A country totally destroyed. Torture was ordered. It's a mistake. So there's no, there's no accountability. There's no justice. It's still, there's still a positive spin put on it. Because we did it. Now, if any other country did exactly what we did, that same set of facts, we would say it's, it's a war crime. What they did is brutal, and there needs to be justice. People should go to prison over it. There should be war crimes trials. That's what we'd say if anybody else did it. When we do it, at uh, even if it's bad, it was a mistake. It's a mistake. So human beings have this propensity to view what they do in the best possible light. And you save the harsh judgments for others. And, you know, with everything that Trump has done and everything he continues to do, that's why I was sounding the alarm so strongly over the Insurrection Act thing, because I needed everybody to know this is what authoritarianism looks like. This is what it is. He's saying, I will send U.S. troops into U.S. cities. Preposterous. That's authoritarianism. And now we're just seeing, you know, the decline happening even faster, whether it's the Maria Bartiromo thing or now. Now, Rick Wiles is a fringe whack job. He's a Christian fundamentalist, insane person. But uh, this does represent some segment of the population. And, by the way, Christian fundamentalists, if you close your eyes, that sounds a lot like Jesus, right? Talking about how you've got to kill the protesters, bro. What do you mean? Is that what Jesus would do? Is that what Jesus would do? Go kill the people who are advocating everybody gets health care. Go do that. There was a time when all this stuff was just funny, but now it's not funny anymore. It's just like, oh, so that's a mentality that exists. The guy casually advocating for killing protesters. Terrifying. Okay. We are done, y'all. I will see everybody back here on Wednesday. Wednesday at 2. I love you guys, man. Stay healthy. And keep your eye on our 
on the Secular Talk channel, we will also have more Michael Brooks re-upload content dropping as a tribute to our boy who we're still thinking about. Anyway, I'll talk to you later, guys. Have a good one. Peace.